Welcome to the Modern Independent, where we are on a mission to assist modern independent workers in accelerating their growth, both personally and professionally. Every year, our parent community, Indie Collective, offers two 10-week accelerator programs known as the Launchpad. In these programs, cohorts of around 80 independent consultants and coaches, just like you, gain access to an expert-led curriculum, then work together to set bigger visions and goals for their business and lives. If you're interested in learning more about our 10-week Launchpad cohorts, go to www.indiecollective.co, where you can learn about the program, hear members speak about their experiences, and apply for the next cohort. We accept applications on a rolling basis, and as a podcast listener, you'll receive priority when applying for an interview, as well as a limited-time $500 friends and family discount. Just reference the podcast in your application. And now, on to the episode. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Modern Independent. I'm Jan Almasy, and this is The Launchpad. Today, we're going to be hanging out with a guest that I am so hyped to have behind the microphone with me, Miss Ashley Quinto Powell. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a background on how baller of a woman this is. Ashley is a sales whiz who's super passionate about self-advocacy. Through her consultancy, Ashley partners with founders and CEOs of startups and small businesses to help them more competently sell their professional services. Leveraging her non-salesy playbook, Ashley helps these businesses to smooth their sales cycles by creating go-to-market strategies and outreach campaigns that honor the reputation and the personality of the founders, while unlocking the power of building relationships at scale. She's a keynote speaker and a subject matter expert on salary negotiation, community building, and executive motherhood. Her speaking style is funny, I can vouch for that, informative, and inspiring, and she is well known for bringing humor to weighty topics and leaving audiences energized and empowered. I am so excited to introduce you guys to Ashley, so I'm going to shut up now and let Ashley take the floor. Ashley, welcome to the Launchpad. Oh my gosh, thank you, Jan, so much for having me. I am bonkers excited to be here. I am so amped to have this conversation too. I would just like to start right with a introduction into who is Ashley Quinto Powell. Like in your own words, when you kind of entered this whole like entrepreneurial space, has it been something that you've been interested in since you were a little kid? You know, what is really this essence of who you kind of believe yourself to be? Ooh, that's a great question. I was raised by entrepreneurs. My parents together founded Quinto and Company when I was like a really little kid that was a brokerage firm that um, traded on the Kansas City Board of Trade. And then my, I have, I'm like one of those entrepreneurs who had businesses when I was a kid. My One of my first like child businesses was as a dog walker. Mm. I lived in downtown Chicago and I walked a couple of dogs twice a day and I made like $20 a day, which in the 90s for a child was so much money. I, don't, I still don't think I've quite had that much cash flow into a business since. <laughs> and then I start, I, I founded my first real company when I was in my early 20s. It was an e-commerce site for giant jewelry. Giant jewelry. Expand on costume jewelry, but like flashy. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Like, like I'm picturing like, like stage set, like big, like, wait, like, are we talking about like a clock, like a big clock type of deal or no, but I have definitely rocked a big clock. 
<laughs> you know, big flashy costume jewelry. There are there are more places that do it today, but we mm-hmm. were right before people were really buying fashion in online, and so we were a little bit ahead of our time. And but it was really fun, and actually, that's the thing that got me into tech. It was such a tough experience. I had I had an apartment that I sold in order to fund the startup. I cashed in my four hundred one k, and mm. my business got eaten by the recession. And so coming mm. out of that, I, I really felt like I am not an entrepreneur. I'm mm. going to work for somebody else for the rest of my natural life. And somebody else is going to have to be responsible for my paycheck, like arriving in my bank account to buy a direct deposit. Mm. And I thought, well, that's the best way to not mess it up. And then, you know, 15 years later, I sort of figured out that actually anybody can mess up your paycheck. Um, and so if anybody can do it, why don't you just have it be you? Um, right. if, you know, if it can get messed up by anybody, might as well take the chance of of getting it right. Now, now that's that's really intriguing to me because I feel like there's a lot of the entrepreneurs that I've had the ability to talk to, a lot of these independents um, that have had this journey. Right? They they almost always seem to have this inflection point where they failed so epically that they like completely lost faith in their ability to do the independent work for a period of time, you know, like the whole, what you just said, you know, that somebody else needs to be responsible for my paycheck. I don't know if I'm cut out for this. Um, how did you, you know, there's that 15 year gap of, of working and, and going into tech and, and kicking butt inside of that nine to five. Why don't we talk about like what that journey was going into the nine to five world and maybe some things that you learned about yourself along the way, because eventually you got to a place where you were able to tell yourself, I am capable of doing this. I'm going to jump back in. So what was, what was that journey like? Well, it was, it was definitely a good one. I, I learned quite a lot and looking back, I think I should have, I really should have worked for someone else in the industry. I should have worked in tech before like owning a tech company would have been a super great idea. Hmm. And, and when I went back to corporate, I got a job doing uh, technical consulting sales, which felt like, you know, I had, I had a sales background already. And then with my startup, I had tech. So it felt like a good blend of the two. Although frankly, I was just pretty happy to have a job. And I learned so much. All the stuff that I know now, all the instincts that I have were built sort of in the in the 10 years that I sold consulting for other people. And my practice is centered around helping agencies and consultants where practitioners need to sell helping them do that because it's really hard and it's a you know it's a very specific niche. I don't work with salespeople. I don't really work with salespeople who work for the kinds of companies that I want to consult with. I just work with the founders of those companies. Hmm. But I I had this really wonderful training ground where I got to cut my teeth and I got to learn all the lessons and make all the mistakes and follow their process and then improve upon it. So I'm actually really grateful for the time that I had for the time that I had in corporate. And certainly if I had waited longer to found a company, I might have done it a little bit differently. Hmm. Hmm. I'm really, the, the statement that you just made about like the honing of your instincts, you know, like I think that people really, especially what I'm seeing right now in, in kind of the world, every in digital, right. Everything is so fast paced in tech. Everything is so fast paced. And it seems like, at least the perception that I've had in some of the incubators that I've gone to and some of the people that I've talked to in some of these entrepreneurial spaces is like, 
you know, if you're not starting a tech company under 25, you're wrong, you yeah. know, and, it, and yeah. it feels like, you know, why is that? Why, why are people discounting what that ability is to hone your instincts in? And, and what I related it to from my perspective, and I'd be curious about kind of, you know, your perspective on, on this honing of that instinct is, is like, if I, I'm a jujitsu player, right. And I enjoy going and rolling on the mats. And when you first go there, I was a wrestler before the first time I ever stepped onto a jujitsu mat. And so I thought that I had good instincts for combat, combative kind of grappling, except for the fact that in wrestling, the entire goal is to stay off your back. And in jujitsu, the entire goal is to be able to defend from your back. Mm. And so my instincts were just wrong, blatantly. You know, like I, I felt like I was going to be able to do really well and I was just getting choked out left and right. And it took probably three or four months for me to retrain my instincts to not send me into an existential crisis when I was on my back, <laughs> you know? And so I'm wondering, like, as you're going through those, those tech spaces, how did you feel or can you can you describe that feeling of of the instincts kind of honing themselves in or are there any situations that you can think of where it's like oh my gut instinct was to do this but I learned a tough lesson and now I'm you know I'm able to make a better decision the next time around yeah I mean there's all sorts of stuff in in reading clients one of the things that I regularly work with clients through is if there is silence from a consultant or I'm sorry, if there's silence from a, a prospective client, we often assume if price has been mentioned, we believe it's because we outpriced ourselves. Hmm. And actually we have, we don't have any feedback to say that. And frankly, most of the time that has nothing to do with it, but I think we're self-conscious once we have, once we've talked about price, then we think that that's always the thing. Hmm. And, and so, you know, if you have somebody ghost you after you've submitted a proposal, you, I, th I think it's fairly common for people to go back and say like, well, what can we do for you? Well, they didn't ask. And I think that that's, I think that's really dangerous. You know, in the, there's a saying that's in the, in the absence of information, we substitute our own assumptions. And, mm, I love um, that. and I think that's a really, I think that's a really dangerous thing to do. So that's one of the things that I have, that I have thought about deeply and, and honed over time, but there's all sorts of stuff. Like I can sort of tell by some, I can take a couple of cues and know, oh, that consultant is absolutely not going to be a good fit for the project or, or that person's not even going to show up to the meeting. And I don't, mm. I couldn't tell you how I know those things exactly. I've just been through enough of them that I think I, you know, I, I have a, I have an instinct for it now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's super important to understand because if I'm really thinking about, you know, like the dynamic between intellect and intuition, you know, and, and it seems like everybody is sitting inside of or not everybody, but a lot of people are sitting inside of this intellectual space. Like the more, you know, the more productive you can be, the better your systems are going to be and everything. But I feel like there's this other piece, you know, that we're hitting on right now that, that is that intuitive, I, that intuitive ability, you know, the ability to detect patterns, the ability to just kind of, I don't know what's off about this, but mm -hmm. something's not right. You know, and no matter how much your rational brain is like, I don't know, everything on paper is looking pretty solid. There's still this piece of you that over time, and don't underestimate, if you're listening to this right now, don't underestimate the ability to allow yourself to hone that intuition. You know, even if you're really wanting to push yourself into the independent space, one thing that I've really learned from going through Indie Collective that's been phenomenal 
is really just embodying the role of the student mm -hmm. and really kind of absorbing as much and asking all of these questions and saying, you know, what would you do in this situation? How would this work? You know, what have you encountered? And allowing that to help you kind of gauge and build that intuition over time, I think is super, super cool that you that that's something that you hit on as a core point. Now, so so you were, you were going through this 15 year period. So what types of jobs did you do inside of that that 15 year period while you were in corporate? I did almost exclusively technical consulting sales. So I, okay. I did it on the ERP side and and I was a senior manager at a at a pretty big and company. And just for, for listeners that don't know what ERP is, what is ERP? I mean, it's like Oracle and SAP. It's essentially the okay. the main systems that that enterprise companies work with. Roger. Okay. Yeah, so I I mostly did that and then I started working for software developers which was still technical consulting, but at that time we were making apps and that was pretty interesting. Oh, I took cool. a very very brief step out of tech in order to work for a publisher, a regional publisher um in the in the Midwest and that was kind of fun, but it was so it was so different than tech and I love tech. But you know, mm. you mentioned something there's something so interesting about what you were just saying. Can we go back to it because there is such yeah. hubris in assuming that like young people right out of college or young people who just skipped out of college um, know more about an industry and know more about how to disrupt it than people who've been working in it for a long time. And mm. I, I have thought that that's really interesting for a while and have seen some entrepreneurs who are essentially reinventing the wheel in an attempt to disrupt it. And I think it's, it's just an interesting thing. Ooh, Yeah. Well, and that's that's something that you, the ability to have, like, something that was always taught to me in the military, right? When I, because I served in the Air National Guard for about six and a half years, mm -hmm. and you would have these cadets come out of ROTC, and we would interact with these people, these lieutenants that were fresh out of college, um, and had just been in the Air Force for you know six months, and I remember distinctly this young lieutenant interacting with a chief master sergeant that had been in for like 27 years, right? So the chief is like getting ready to retire. Dude's been on like 10 deployments to Afghanistan. I mean, he knows his stuff, right? And this lieutenant was really trying to push this, push his rank essentially on this chief and was using the rank on his collar because technically he outranks the chief master sergeant because he's an officer and the chief master sergeant is an enlisted okay. member. And so he didn't take into account the time and grade and the experience and all this other stuff. And so this lieutenant is really trying to push this chief and the chief just looks at him and is like, listen, man, he was like, you would be wise to listen to what I'm telling you because I've been around this block more times than you've like been in the air force period. You know, I've been on more deployments than you've been in months. <laughs> and, and that's something like to, to your point, why reinvent the wheel when you can listen to a mentor that's been in the space for a very long time and and actually understand what that landscape looks like mm -hmm. i mean i think that's super undervalued so we get it we get through this 15 year period mm -hmm. right what launched you back into independent work or what was kind of that that inflection point that you said i'm going to go back to doing my own thing 
Well, I had been dreaming of it for quite some time and I actually kept a notebook on me where I jotted um, business ideas and, and I was meeting with all of these interesting entrepreneurs in Chicago and Madison and, and it was, it was really fun. And I've always, I've always been supporting female entrepreneurs in particular and, and that energy is really contagious. So I was keeping a notebook of like all the things I wanted to do. And I actually went into consulting in order to join a startup. And my last company, Table XI, well, you know, Mark Require is the CEO. Of just, yeah, you worked for Table XI? Yeah, I, um, I had a sales and marketing. And then Mark Require helped me think through what I would consult on and introduced me to my first couple of clients. So it, so he's he's been a, a very influential relationship in my life for, since before um, I worked for him. And I, I joined a startup that was a wedding registry for art thinking that, um, you know, at the t- when I, when I went off on my own, it was terrifying because I was the only breadwinner in my home. My husband was a stay at home dad and I was commuting between Chicago and Madison. So I was paying for like a Chicago apartment and a mortgage in Madison. I had two kids in private school. And so mm. the consulting was just meant to replace my income and keep my family level. And then I fell in love with the consulting. I thought that I would just I would just do it long enough for the startup to take its place income wise, and then I would dump it like a hot potato. And um, I I love the work that I do. You know, I work with really good people. The people I, I don't really love salespeople. I think I might be the only salesperson to readily admit that. But I I I. As I'm looking at my clients, they are all really good people who are very conscious, like not being rude and not being sleazy. And they're in the businesses they're in because they want to be doing really good work. They usually left a larger agency because they knew they could do better by their clients. So, so the thing that's standing in the way of them being fabulously wealthy is their ability to sell. And, and conversely, if they can't sell it, they have to go back to corporate. So, so I want to help those folks because those folks deserve to be wildly successful. So I feel really yeah. strongly about that. And I love the work that I get to do. I kicked off with a, a client who I, I absolutely adore this week. They are a, they are a film production company. So it's a little, like, it's a little outside of my usual niche, but they're lovely, lovely people. And they sort of fit the model, you know, that the founders are doing the sales and they've had such a bad experience with mentors who are trying to teach them how to sell. And one of the first things that I said to them when I came in was, okay, well, we're going to listen to your comfort zone. I know everybody who's trying to teach you sales has has said, get out of your comfort zone, but actually we're going to use it as a good gauge for how you sound to people that you're talking to. If you feel weird about what you're saying, you're going to sound weird. So we're going to listen to that and we're going to really honor your comfort zone. <laughs> That's a really good point. And you could you could just see yeah. on their faces, they're like, oh, thank goodness, this is not going to be a terrible, a terrible experience. The way most most people enter into sales, they're, you know, it's like, hey, get get out there and don't take no for an answer. And I've seen sales trainings even that have, um, like one was so aggressive and so violent. It was essentially pick your weapons, pick your target. And then, and then, I don't know, get your bullseye. Like, oh my gosh, but we are talking about humans. So right, right. seems a little overdone. Jeez, I feel like Catherine Zach would be like, no, 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 no. Like those are words that we could not use when we're talking about like 
even mentally, because what that would do to you is it puts you in a place where all of the writing that you do, all of the way that you sound, I'm a firm believer that input equals output. Yeah. So, you know, if you're, if your input and the structure that you're trying to build yourself in is I'm going to pick up a bow and arrow and point it at this client and, you know, hit the bullseye, then you're going to sound aggressive as hell in an email. Right. Absolutely. And that's, and that's, that's, that's something that, I mean, what I pointed out in, in the very beginning when I was introducing you is this non-salesy playbook, mm-hmm. right? What, so, so is that just something that, you know, this is how Ashley is and you're just kind of embodying your personality into a, like a sales playbook that's not salesy or, or how well, did that kind of start to build itself out? It's pretty strategic. And a lot of, a lot of what I, I teach people to do is focused around building authentic relationships in a way that is time efficient. And actually, I um, I have a proprietary method that I share in two places. One is private consulting. And the other is in Indie Collective. Actually, Indie Collective is the only time that I actually share like, okay, but here is what you do, like step by step. I love Indie Collective and Sam so much. But, you know, I think part of part of it is that sales has changed a lot in the last 15 years. You know, when I was when I was first doing technical consulting sales, I was doing everything by phone and and I was on huge accounts. I was on Coca-Cola, I was on AC Nielsen, and I was doing huge business with those companies. And I never met anybody. I did everything over the phone. I built relationships over the phone, but you know, I was basically cold calling. And now you couldn't do that. You just couldn't. You couldn't like pick up the phone and be like, you know what, I'm gonna sell. $3 million this year based on like LinkedIn and the phone book. You couldn't, things have changed. And I think that's really good for people who haven't, who haven't developed like really strong, aggressive sales tactics because those are dead and dying. And our clients really want to be, they want to be treated with dignity. And also they want to be talking to other founders and other peers. Yeah. So, so why, in that in that same kind of vein, like why do you think that it has changed and that the more aggressive sales tactics are dying? Is it because the like people are craving more of the connectivity? Is it technology advancing and and being able to do more face to face contact? Like what are some of the ways that you think that are causing that methodology of sales to decline? I think a big part of it actually is is uh, content the ways that we have access to content in a way we didn't before. You know, when my grandfather was doing door-to-door sales, it was fun to have a salesperson come to you because that's how you heard about new technologies. But we're so used to being able to go out and find our own answers that we're Mm. really distrustful of someone who is trying to both give us information and sell something. So you almost can't do that anymore because people put up, you know, people put up real serious barriers and they don't trust it. So, so the alternative then is to be someone that they know and someone that they trust so that when they have questions, they can, they can ask them of you. But, um, you know, ideally you're the person that, um, that somebody calls when they say, Hey, I've done a little bit of research on this. I want to validate it with you. Or what do you think I should do? And, and when they come to you, that's, that's a real powerful thing, but you, you sort of have to set it up so that you have a relationship that you don't know is going to bear fruit until it does. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey listener, sorry to interrupt the vibes. I'll be out of your way in just a second. 
It's Jan, the head of community here at Indie Collective. Thanks for making it this far into our episode. Just a reminder that if you're connecting with this story, you can go to IndieCollective.co where you can learn about the program, hear members speak about their experiences, and apply for our next cohort. As a podcast listener, you'll receive priority when applying for an interview, as well as a limited-time $500 friends and family discount. All right, I'll get back out of your way. Yeah, I like. I was I was in a Target probably like six months ago, and I found it so fascinating. I was sitting in there, and like, there's this this um, couple looking at a Samsung TV on the wall, right? And there was a Target person talking to them about the Samsung TV on the wall. And and when I walked by, the the girlfriend had Amazon open and was <laughs> reading and was reading reviews. Yeah. On Amazon about the Samsung TV. Like she wasn't even listening to the Target guy. She didn't even care what the Target guy had to say, right? Yeah. Because it's it's like people are so capable. There's so much information out there at this point that I, th- I think that's fascinating that you're like, you can't combine the two. Like you're either selling or you're providing information. But like, if you do that both at the same time, it almost feels like the information is invalidated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it didn't used to be that way. It used to be very, very valid information because you didn't have access to anything different. But now we do. And so sales has to change a little bit. I think also as we see more diverse pipeline of executives, they want to be doing business differently. So, you know, it really worked. Salespeople used to be like young guys with a sports background who had just graduated from college for many different reasons. They had a sports background because that's how you validate that someone is competitive. And they were right out of college because you weren't actually going to pay them. You were going to pay them commission. And the only people who can really do that are like living with their parents. So they tended to be like young, plucky, ambitious white guys. And the people that they were selling to were older versions of that. And so they really, you know, they felt like, oh, this kid reminds me of me. I really trust him. That makes sense. Well, when you bring in more people of color and more women into higher ranks and buying positions in companies, sales then has to change. Because Mm -hmm. I can tell you that if some young cocky kid came in and told me what I was going to buy, I would, I would bristle, right? I actually want to talk to someone who um, I view more as a peer. And so anyway, as, as the, as the buyer changes, so do the salespeople. Yeah, agreed. So as much as my selfishly, I would like to continue going down this sales rabbit hole because I'm just fascinated and I could talk to you about sales all day. I want to I want to teleport backwards just a little bit towards the tail end of this 15 year period where you're transitioning back into independence. So you you said that you were you bouncing back and forth. Your husband was a stay at home dad. You had an apartment in Chicago. That's a lot of stuff to balance and try to to figure out all of those moving pieces, especially as like a working mother, that's the breadwinner of the household. And I know that in your Ted talk, you were really talking about this, this balance and empowering other executive women to go out there and chase those careers instead of, um, I am being to be paraphrasing this, but instead, instead of basically being told to pass up every opportunity that came your way until your kid got out of kindergarten. Is, mm-hmm. is that correct? I think that I yeah. got that right. Yeah. Um, how how did you how do you go about balancing that? Because I know that there's going to be a lot of working mothers and and people that have those aspirations of being able to do that, but maybe feel like it's impossible to try to balance it, or they have their peer groups or their friend groups kind of telling them that it's impossible to balance. So what are what are some of those key insights that you could pass along? 
Well, it is, it is, as it turns out, really, really hard to balance. And it's helpful if you're not even going for balance. You know, my husband and I were out of balance for a really long time. He was at home. I was never at home. He did all of the domestic stuff. I did none of it. And that was okay. It all got done. Where we are now is we both work quite a lot. And there are things that, there are things that are wildly out of balance. We can't figure out how to make a healthy meal to save our lives. And like a, frozen lasagna is is on the menu a couple times a week and that has to be okay because the alternative is like somebody stops working and we're both going forward and not actually willing to make that sacrifice which is fine I don't think I you know I expect that my children will be really proud of me because I built a couple companies and I expect my children will be proud of my husband because of how hard he works and the um and the things that he's up to and and they'll probably hate frozen lasagna by the time the their childhoods are done but it'll be a small a small sacrifice to make but yeah. you know I think one of the things to do is to not take everything as seriously as everything else right? Like if you decide that your house has to be clean, you're going to spend a lot of time cleaning your house. And that's fine if you want a really clean house. If you want an executive level position and, and you don't feel like hiring someone, you're not going to be able to go forward in the same way. If you decided you didn't, you either didn't care about a clean house or didn't want to clean it. So I think there are some things that you just have to decide that's not important, or I'm delegating that, or I'm hiring it out, or where I'm doing it completely differently. You know, one of the reasons that I got to Chicago, of course, is that I got a big job. My husband didn't want to move. And, and I don't, I don't honestly know what would have happened to my marriage if he had had to put his foot down and say, no, we're not going. And I would have had to turn down that opportunity. I'm not sure I could have done it. I was so excited. It was, it was a huge opportunity for me and a dream job. And I already knew Mark Rickmeyer and really wanted to work for him. And I know enough about me to know that I really would have felt stifled if my husband had said, we're not going. So it's helpful then if you look at life, like it's helpful if you look at life as rather than a series of things you have to do, but a series of things that should be done. And you can decide that um, some of those things that should be done are healthy meals, or you can decide that it's taking kids to soccer practice, or you can decide that you're um, outsourcing half of that, working as much as you want to work and setting and setting somebody else up for success in a slightly different way. So I think the whole thing is malleable. We're really stuck in gender norms and we're really stuck in expectations that we have of what families do and how families operate. And um, that's not healthy. Yeah, no, I, I don't think so either. I, I'm without running the risk of sending this into like a deep philosophical discussion. I, I've really been fascinated with this idea of attention in general, you know, instead of looking at the world, like you said, as a series of chronological tasks. Mm -hmm. and, and it starts for me, it started when I was like 17, 18. And I feel like there's a lot of other people in that age. Well, adolescence is just a crap show anyway. But, you know, you get to 17 or 18 and immediately it's okay. What are you going to do for the rest of your life? What school are you going to? How are you going to get there? How are you going to pay for it? You know, and then we have all of these people in like their junior year of college having a midlife crisis yeah. because they feel like they just had to go right down the line. Boom, 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 boom. And they almost start to wake up because there's so much information out there and they're being flooded constantly, they start to wake up and be like, wait a second, like, what am I actually doing? And 
it's it's curious that that what you choose to pay attention to is what accentuates your life. You know, if you pay attention to having a super super clean house, then mm-hmm. that that two hours of attention is now pulling two hours of attention away from, like you're saying, that two hours of attention towards an executive level position. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 you only have. I mean, they talk about the whole eighty six thousand four hundred seconds in a day. Right. Like it resets every day, but what you choose to dedicate your attention to is what grows. And I feel like people maybe underestimate, you know, what to, when you were talking about your kids, what they see, you know, and talking about being an inspiration as your as the mom building these companies and what that actually means, you know, not just like I'm gone all the time. Right. You right. know, there, there's a second half of that. Me and my dad had a conversation about that not too long ago because he was a traveling salesman and built his own company. He was an entrepreneur. And it was weird because like, I think it was like two years ago. So I'm in my 20s at this point having a conversation with him about it. And he's like, I just feel so bad about never being home. And I didn't realize that that was something that he had thought about for years. It was like haunting him. Hmm. And I was like, dad, it's like the reason why I'm pushing myself so hard in the military, the reason why I want to be a responsible adult. The reason why I'm pushing myself in these entrepreneurial spaces is because I watched you provide for our family. You know? uh, that's magical, Jan. And that conversation happened because he was constantly, I mean, he would call home and we would pray together every night. You know, there's those little things that even though he was gone, we knew why. Mm. And then when he was home, he was present. And, and I think that that's something that if there's anybody listening to this right now that may be dealing with a little bit of that, it's like, don't underestimate the power of what a child is able to perceive, especially if there's still that strong presence, like you said, your husband being at home and being able to act in a role in a slightly different way outside of what the you know society deems as the norm is, is able to provide that support and, and don't underestimate what those kids are able to perceive moving forward. I think that's so cool. Yeah, that's really insightful, Jan. And I had a conversation with my dad. I had a, I had maybe a five day business trip when my, when my daughter was really little and my son was, let's say my daughter was an infant and my son was, was two or three. And um, I was really having a hard time with being gone that long. And I said something to my dad and I sort of snapped at him and I said something like, well, some of, some of us have to get back home or something. I can't even remember what it was, but he looked at me like I had grown a horn. I was like, do you feel guilty about this? You shouldn't feel guilty about this. He also traveled while I was a kid. He traveled all over the world. He had the coolest job ever. He was the president of a brokerage firm and um, he met with clients in Japan and Saudi Arabia and um, like flew literally all over the world. Um, He was doing business in the Middle East when nobody was doing business in the Middle East. He had a really great, he had a really great business life. And he said, I didn't feel bad about it. Did you feel, did you feel like I wasn't there? Of course not. I thought you were super cool. It's like, yep. It changed things for me really. Yeah, yeah. I think that that perception is so important. It goes back to like those things that you choose to pay attention to, you know? So inside of that whole realm of 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 balance and really trying to understand the intricacies of that, I'm going to kind of transition us a little bit into, into a conversation about superpowers, because that's something that I think is super, super important. We talk about it in Indie Collective a lot. 
Um, and I know for me, that was like the self-discovery process of going through the identification of a superpower and really kind of anchoring your identity in that was super powerful as far as just like blowing limiting beliefs out of the water, you know? And so when we were kind of talking in our pre-interview process before coming on the show, we were talking about this art of delegation, you know, and, and this superpower that you seem to have really honed in on and understood over the course of your journey. Um, what, let's start speaking about a little bit of that. Why do you feel like delegation is a superpower and how have you learned to really execute on that in your space? Well, anybody who is a solo entrepreneur can tell you that there is a never ending list of things to do. I mean, it will literally, it will, it will continue to go on for pages and pages and pages, no matter how much you accomplish. And I, I don't know about you, but I didn't work this hard to work this hard. I want to take a nap. I want to be with my children. I want to spend time cooking. I have hobbies. I want to, I want to go on vacation. And, and you can't do that if you are doing everything else, right? It's the, it's the balance of time. And actually one of the things that I really like about thinking about your time, you mentioned how many seconds we have in a day. Hmm. Um, I used to tell people, you know, you have as many hours in the day as Beyonce. And um, people would always say, well, but she has a staff. Okay. Well, how did, how did she get there? Right. Right. She, she probably started offloading things so that she could think big. She probably had someone take care of things so that she could spend time where it really mattered, where you really needed Beyonce's brain and her voice and had somebody else do the rest. And I think it's okay if we think about ourselves like that. You know, one of the, I've done a bunch of research on delegation as part of um, starting a, starting my virtual assistant agency. And, and we ask ourselves a lot, like, is that CEO work? Should you be doing that? Mm. And one of the other ways to think of that is, does Oprah respond to every piece of fan mail? Of course not. That would be ludicrous. So if you're getting a lot of emails, why do you think you need to respond to them all? Right. And right. It's just not, there's just, uh, there's a bunch that's not necessary. And I think, um, you know, like our VAs are, um, our VAs are $35 an hour. And so sometimes if I'm like really miserable doing a task, I will say, is it worth $35 for me to have someone else do this? That's and exactly what I was just going to bring up. The answer is yes, get this off my plate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and to in, in that same arena, you know, when you, we go through a course like Indie Collective, you know, and we talk about productization and pricing and and how to really look at your look at your time as valuable time because i think one of the traps that entrepreneurs fall into as they're transitioning into that independent work is like oh everybody else's time is worth time and money but my time working on my own business is like non-billable hours right right, right. And, and then you look at yourself and you're like wait a second i'm charging clients x rate and so if i'm charging myself that rate for the amount of time that I'm going to have to spend on this project, but I know X person that costs X amount of dollars and I know that they're going to get it done with higher quality. So it takes humility to like pass it along to somebody and understand that they're probably better at it than you are. And they're going to get it done in less time. How much are you weighing yourself? How much are you weighing your time and the value of your time in completing a project? If it takes three hours and you're charging a hundred dollars an hour, that's 300 bucks. And if somebody that you know can do it for 75 in an hour and a half, mm -hmm. Mm 
mm-hmm. you know, like that, just pass it along. I, I don't know if it's like fear of passing it along. I'm not sure if it's a control thing, if it's, you know, what that is, but sometimes it's so hard to delegate up front. I know I experienced that for sure. I was white knuckling the crap out of that steering wheel when mm-hmm. I first got into it. And then you just get to a point where you're so mentally overloaded that it's like, oh man, okay, I need to figure out how to delegate at this point. So it, it truly is a superpower because there are a lot of intricacies to getting to that confidence level, I think, of stopping, pausing, asking yourself, is this worth it? And then being willing to pass it along. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the investment that it takes to teach someone to do it is daunting. And, you know, the clients that come to me for my VAs are almost always in um, in a mode of it's so hard to bring someone on. It's easier to just do it myself. And they've been there for years. And, you know, if they had thought, well, if I spend an hour a week doing this thing, that's probably better than teaching someone for three hours how to do it, but you don't figure out that you're going to be doing that once a week for the next five years. If you really understood like the numbers that were supposed to go into the math, but it's, it is hard to wrangle precious time out of a day. Right. Right. So, I mean, so this is all kind of like in balance in this discovery of delegation as a superpower as we're, you're kind of moving forward through this, you really have developed this passion for reaching out to other, other women in the tech space and other women inside of the independent world and have really been a passionate advocate for, for having more females in those executive positions. And, and actually, I think providing that peer group to support each other, to lift each other up, which is super, super important. And so one question that's just been kind of itching at me ever since I met you is like, what do you see as, as some of the big obstacles preventing more women from entering those types of spaces? And, and how can like us, how can we kind of help burst through those or provide uh, the lanes to be able to make that happen? Ooh, what a good question. Well, I think one of the problem, one of the, the primary problem that I see is that as someone gets really senior in their career and they start going up the ranks, Once they get to a point where they're feeling secure in their career, the first thing they want to do is put down roots and start a family. And instead of that being a symptom of someone's seniority, it is a symptom for women that they don't want to be in the workforce. That's a signal to a corporation that you're less dedicated to your career than you, than we thought you were before you were pregnant. So that's a real problem because um, we're, we are essentially telling our best and brightest oh, sorry, we didn't realize you're actually not dedicated to this at all. Exactly at the point where they're really getting senior, right? Where all of our training and all of our investment in them is really paying off. Hmm. And they're doing the thing that they are supposed to do when they get stable in life. When women take maternity leave, they their whole careers will see will see backlash to that. Heaven forbid they take more than three months off. And we see that that sometimes happens to men too. It's not even a female specific issue. It's a, it's an issue with all parents, but because it's primarily women, when a woman gets pregnant, we assume that she's not going to be, we, we assume that she's not going to be as dedicated. We think she's going to want to, we think she's going to want to leave or step back or go part-time or whatever. And when we make too many of those assumptions, you know, having a baby is really hard and navigating your career in a baby is really hard. And so instead of offering support when it is hardest, when that baby is a baby baby, 
we say, Ooh, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? And after a while, no, I'm not sure. And of course, because input equals output, right? If that's all you're hearing, that's, that's, of course, you're going to start doubting yourself. Of course. It's the only thing you can do. And I actually think that um, the world would change quite a lot if um, we took the first step of having men take paternity leave in a meaningful way. Mm. If it was not just a women's issue. And, and I think from a, from a perspective at home, you know, my husband, when he took paternity leave for our second, he took three half days, not three and a half days. He took three half days because that was what he could get for having a new baby, which is, you know, it's of course, it's of course ludicrous. And that is a very extreme example, but that left me alone with an infant and a toddler and, and he wasn't even well set up to be able to help because he wasn't there in the early days. So if you allow men to come home and prove that they're man enough to help raise children and change diapers and be meaningfully active, um, they'll, you know, they'll do it. They'll step up, but not if they, they can't do it if they're not even allowed to be home to bond and to, and to learn how to take care of some, uh, take care of a, a family. So, so I think if we, if men started taking paternity leave, I really think it would change, it would change things for corporate women everywhere. Yeah. And even outside of, even outside of corporate women, like I was an RN, right? I worked in ICUs and then I was a trauma nurse and that I am so thankful that I was in that career field because the amount of just like absolute boss ass women that I was (laughs) able to be around, like, I mean, just sitting at these nurses stations, I literally would sit there and I would like the running joke was like, Jan was getting out his notebook because I was like, okay, don't do this, do this, don't do this do this. And it was, I remember distinctly, there was this one of the women that I worked with, her name was Brooke. And she would come in and she was pregnant, and was still hustling with patients taking three patient assignments, like did not affect her vision or drive for becoming the next nursing manager of that unit at all, you know, and and inside of that small nursing community, it was very supportive. Mm -hmm. Like you go girl, like, let's get it. Let's make things happen. To the point where like we would help where if she would get tired because like, I worked night shift, right? So I would work from 3 p.m. to 3 a.m. She would hit a brick wall at like 1 o'clock in the morning and just be sitting at the nurse's station like trying to like keep herself Oof. stable, right? To the where we like me and a couple of the aides or, you know, whoever was on shift that night, we would literally just like pick up some of her patient team and let her take a nap. And after 25 minutes, 30 minutes, boom, good to go. Gets back out onto the floor and keeps on chucking forward. But that that little bit of a culture that I witnessed inside of the nursing community, I was like baffled when I didn't see that reflected in kind of this corporate mm-hmm. world that I seem to be in right now because they're they're really focused on that empowerment. And then like they come back and they're showing baby pictures to everybody and everybody's so excited for them. And they're like, we yeah, way to go. Like we're so proud of you for doing this and welcome back to the unit. And I was so sad to not see that reflected in the corporate world because – I mean, back to the whole input equals output thing. I mean, you have this really high performer that's about to be promoted to a nurse manager, you know, that, that is, is really in line with her career, has her goals set. And I can't imagine what it would have been like for her had that support system not been there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she, she sounds amazing. She sounds super fun. Yeah. She's not, and she is a nurse manager at this point, you know, and that's, that's, that's so, 
enlightening, I think, that that that, that empowerment needs to be there. And the, the perspective on paternity leave, I think, is so true. Being able to take that back and and normalize that 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 dynamic needs to happen, that the father not only deserves to be a part of the child's life that early on, but should be an intimate part of that dynamic flow mm-hmm. back and forth. Yeah, I, I could probably hit that all night too, because my mom is an immigrant from Slovakia and in Europe, it's way different the way that they handle things than here in the United States, as far as paternity leave and, and everything like that. And they see a lot better results, but we'll save that conversation for another day. Um, I want to know about your orange living room too. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Sure. My orange, my living room is very orange. Um, because when I went to Chicago, my husband, he didn't feel like the house was his own. My mother had done childcare for us for a long time, like a year or two. And then he was, and then he was at home. And when I left, he really wanted to, he really wanted to make it a change and like really put his signature on his workspace essentially. And so he came up with the idea that we would have an orange living room with accent walls and they're like orange, white, and gray stripes. And, and it's loud. Like it is like your hope. I promise you, you're hoping that it is like a soft pastel or something like very tasteful or muted. And it's not, it is not muted. It is very loud. (laughs) It's like University Um, of Tennessee orange brighten in your face. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And I could have said no. I'm going to put my foot down. You absolutely can't. It's my living room too. I don't want it to be orange. That's going to be hideous. Um, (laughs) And if I had done that, I couldn't have gone. I needed to just give him, I needed to give him um, the autonomy to make decisions like that. Hmm. And, and he did, and it looks fine. It's not what I would have chosen certainly, but it looks fine. And, and it is a near constant reminder that you just can't be everywhere. Right? You can't you can't be in all the decisions. And I think it's such a good metaphor for delegation and for letting go of things that you decide aren't the things that are going to be most important to you. And so it's one of the reasons that the the color of my VA agency is orange. Mm. You know, I, I didn't even make a logo. I just did orange. Orange is the only thing I really picked brand wise. And it's so vital to me that, that, you know, that was a, that was a lesson that I was really grateful to have learned. Now this VA agency, I feel like we've, we've brought it up enough times throughout here that I think we, we, we need to explore it a little bit. Cause I'm sure that there's listeners at this point going like, what the heck is this thing? Like, what do we keep talking about here? So you actually if 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 I'm understanding it correctly from what you've kind of mentioned, that this idea was was it birthed through the indie collective experience? Was it an idea that you had had prior to that? Like, how did this come into an existence, and and why are you like outside of the fact that delegation is a superpower, so passionate about empowering these VAs? Well, in the in the consulting work that I do, I'm essentially looking over people's shoulders and um, and I'm asking them on the sales side to do really tough stuff. It's tedious, it's real hard work um, and it's the stuff that's gonna move their business forward. But I kept seeing time and time again that the admin was so overwhelming for my clients that they were just never gonna get to, they were gonna mm. never gonna get to the stuff that I needed them to do. So I kept recommending that people hire a VA and they would say, well, I don't know where to find one. I don't know what it, what is in scope. I don't know how I would delegate. And so part of all of my consulting engagements practically became 
at teaching people how to get rid of the little stuff so that they could do the big stuff I wanted them to do. And, and at the same time, I was, I was referring VAs enough that it was, it was hard to keep solid list of people that were available because I'd refer them, refer them, refer them, but they'd be booked up. Uh, and uh, uh, so I had this, I had had the idea for a little while when I got to Indie Collective the second time around, I, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an expire, it's an inspiring experience. And I had so much support and, and I launched the VA agency and it was a, it was such, it was such a fun experience. You know, the, as it turns out, I've been following my own sales advice for years. And so we were, we got kicked up really quickly. I think we had our first 20 clients in the first 30 days hmm. at month four, we were doing five figures in monthly recurring revenue and and my goal is to be a million dollar business by April of 2023, which we're on track to do. So, so Indie Collective was a wonderful place to be starting that and to be thinking about advice and, and some of the most busy people in the whole world are at Indie Collective. So it's a good place to, it's a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's being able to go through, it's curious to me that you're like, it happened the second time you went through the course. Because I'm in my second cohort right now, and I'm working on an idea that I'm not going to say anything about quite yet because <laughs> it's not quite ready to hit the world. But I kind of feel like I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Like, I feel like I'm going through the first cohort was almost like a mental reframing, destruction of limiting beliefs, education, and just trying to get my mind into the right place. Like, okay, I can do this. There's this support group here. I found a tribe of people that are kind of pushing me. They understand what I'm talking about. They don't look like me like I'm nuts when I come up with an idea. And then now it's like there was that little bit of a gap. And obviously me and Sam kind of stayed in contact and we're talking right now. So that happened. But now I'm in this second 10-week camp and I'm like, okay, I actually have a tangible business idea at this point. Like I'm going through it and, and launching a something separate. You know, the first one was like, I'm working on me and I'm working on the company that kind of got me into the place that allowed me to get into the cohort, but to really be creative and think about something new to launch or something to play with. Cause I think, I really think that if entrepreneurs look at work as play, it's really beneficial. And so it's like, now I'm in this second cohort and I have gone through this mental restructuring and it's a lot, it was a lot, e it's a lot easier for me to almost be willing to play in the sandbox a little bit more. Cause I don't like negatively talk to myself as often. Ooh, yeah. That's so similar to what my experience was. Um, I talk about it all the time, but in the, f the first time I went through Indie Collective, and this is my third time through, I think I will do Indie Collectives until Sam takes me aside and says, listen, Ashley, by now you are an elderly woman and, <laughs> uh, and you have seven businesses. I'm sure you can stop coming to Indie Collective every <laughs> single time. Yeah. Um, but it, the first time I did it, I had this really impactful experience where I, I got on a networking call with Kyle Westaway, who does one of the, one of the workshops. And he, just as a matter, just as a matter of making conversation, he said, what is your goal for, um, for this, for this cohort? And I said very proudly, well, uh, my goal is to make $250,000 while working about 30 hours a week because I want to spend more time with my kids. And he said, great, is that a month? And it was so 
jarring to hear someone take my like big hairy audacious goal and basically say that is not a big hairy audacious goal that is a small bald goal think bigger hmm uh, certainly it was that experience that that drove me to think further about how I would structure a business so that it could be seven figures. It drove me to um, to reevaluate my pricing structure and and it did a lot of things that changed, right? Like your whole your whole way of thinking about your business and yourself and talk about limiting beliefs. I I've since told that exact story to quite to quite a few people. And in Madison, I'm a member of um, this incredible group of women who are all powerhouses, who are all powerhouses from around Madison. And I told them that story. There's $250,000. Is that a month? And um, one woman is the, she's the head of a nonprofit here. And she said, wow, that is so insulting, you know, um, and so bonkers. I make $75,000 a year and I finally feel like I'm making money and I'm like sending money home. And I don't even, I don't even get how you would make much more than that. Hmm. And the other woman in the conversation who is a fabulously successful entrepreneur smiled in a way that made me know that she does make six figures a month. And, um, and I, we wouldn't, if Kyle Westway hadn't said that to me, I wouldn't have known that that was something I could even think about. It would have just seemed too ridiculous. Right. And you don't really understand. I mean, I'm, I'm in the Midwest where we're all like sweet, kind, humble people. We don't think we need all that money. And so we never talk about it and you don't know what's possible. And mm. And so you need, you need people like, like Kyle Westaway in your life who can tell you, Hey, figure out a goal. That's not small and bald. You need a big, hairy, audacious goal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so that kind of leads us into where I really think, um, we'll be able to kind of, of transition into the, the wrap up of this, of this episode, because we've talked about so many different things between just your entrepreneurial mindset from being a kid to transitioning into 15 years working in technical consulting and sales and working with Mark Rickmeyer, who that I didn't know that connection was a thing. I love Mark. Mark is an absolute phenomenal human. And now, I mean, this is like a perfect transition. I think that to that question, that $250,000, is that a month question? What are some of the like points of leverage or things that you've really learned to start kind of pulling on or executing on, whether it's increasing your efficiency or it's somewhere, it's something in delegation or it's a sales tactic that, that, that you've used or something that, that maybe it could help somebody maybe get one step closer to what that big, hairy, audacious goal might be. Are there things that, that you wish you would have known to execute on or things that you kind of pass down the line and say, hey, if you do this, your life might be a little you might get a little bit closer to what Kyle Westaway's question is. Well, you know, it's a that's a great question. The thing that has really helped me the most and that I've leveraged more more in in being successful than anything else is my is my network. And and I'm really grateful to have a a wonderful supportive network mostly in um mostly in Chicago and Madison, but I'm so grateful for Indie Collective because the network is bonkers. I mean, the people that I get to meet are super, super cool. 
uh, if there was a, I think Emily Grubman was mm. on the team that named Pros, which is a brand I use. Like it's, you know, there's a lot, there are a lot of really cool, brilliant minds in, in Indie Collective. And so it is great to be able to expand a network, but, but that's something that has been helpful for nearly every career move I've made since 2015. Mm. Yeah. I think that there is a, there's a quote that is just like constantly repeated on LinkedIn at this point. So I like in the interest of not being too cliche, I'm just going to preface it with the fact that it's probably cliche at this point, but you know, the whole, that your network is your net worth mentality. Mm -hmm. or plays into your net worth. And and I think what's beautiful about the way that that you approach it, because I've witnessed this, and so I'm speaking to this because I've seen it, you know, is that you approach your network as a place to form deep, intimate relationships with people to understand their needs and really try to figure out where you can collaborate and grow together. You don't look at your network as a cash cow. You know, and there's a lot of people that I know that, constantly you're hitting up their network for everything it's like the northwestern mutual complex you know oh, like goodness. or advocare complex or the what was the other big one like the arbon type of deal you know where it's just like you you start out being friends with all of these people and i can't count the number of people that i've blocked because they're just constantly pigging and the only thing they ever talk about is money 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 right but for everything that we've talked about this episode you know, you're forming deep relationships with people, you're helping people identify those barriers, you're empowering them to seek the best version of themselves. And those are all those things that really provide value into your network. And the, I, I'm a firm believer in the whole, you know, the energy that you put out is the energy that is returned to you. And, and if you're investing that much positive energy, which I watch you do on a like daily basis on LinkedIn and all the speeches that I've ever seen you give, the courses that you're constantly you know, um, speaking on and, and get passing down this advice, if there's anybody listening, she said there's two places that she provides this, these step-by-step these -step instructions. One of the places is Indie Collective. 110%, if there's no other class that you get to attend, I have been in that course and it has completely changed the way that I look at sales. Absolutely, completely, fundamentally changed it. Oh, so, thanks, Jan. Yeah, and so I just want to be able to pass that along and, and provide a little bit of that positive energy back to you, you know, because I, I see you constantly pushing that out into the community, and, and I want you to know that it's noticed and appreciated. Oh, thank you so much. What a fun compliment. Yeah, yeah. So this had been another beautiful episode of the modern independent i am so appreciative of you taking the time to come on and talk with me today it has been a quite the journey over the last hour and i'm really looking forward to all of the people that are listening to this if you know some a, a mother that is aspirational and going into another place and and wants to shoot for higher heights or is experiencing some of those beliefs and stuff shoot her over this episode and where can people find you online Ashley? just so that uh, we can let the audience know where they can seek out more information about you oh sure you can find me at ashleyquintopowell.com or on linkedin i'm very active there yeah well i think that that that's good thanks so much for having me it's been a blast no problem i'll see you the next time